6. I originally had planned on teaching the whole chapter and then realized it was a little bit more than I could chew. I bit off a little more than I could chew. So last week we got through about verse 10. But for those of you that were not here, Paul has uh, been talking to these Corinthians. Uh, There have been people that have basically said, you know what, Paul's not really an apostle and we really don't like what he has to say, so therefore we're not going to listen to him. And that's what happens. When God sends people to speak into the lives of others, many times the first response is, no, we're not going to listen to you. We don't like what you have to say. You've hurt our feelings. The way that you said it wasn't right. Anything that they can do to discredit the messenger of God. Read the Old Testament. You'll see a list of prophets that God sent to the nation of Israel. And they had all kinds of excuses and reasons why they weren't going to listen to him. And yet God continued to show them, hey, this is the same message. Because he would send messenger after messenger with the same message. Multiple people saying the same thing, confirming what God was trying to tell them. And so Paul has a word for this Corinthian church. But if you'll remember, they're a very worldly church. In many ways, they were ineffective. They had no boldness. They weren't any different than the culture surrounding them because rather than them having an effect on the culture around them, the culture had affected them and had dimmed the light that God had placed in the midst of them as a church. So the place of prominence God gave them to be a light in their community, in their world that they lived in, this very influential city called Corinth, um, because the world had a pull on their hearts, their effectiveness was necessarily nil. It was very little. And so when we sing songs like more power, you know, more love, more power, more of you, we, we want power, we want love, but we got to realize that the power and that love is a person. It's Jesus Christ. He is the hope of glory. He's the only one that can cha- transform us by renewing our minds. You can talk someone to their to your blue in the face until they're not listening anymore, and you will not have an effect to change them unless you're speaking to them while the Holy Spirit is coming alongside and working on them as well. The Lord is the changing agent of any society and specifically any individual. And so as we look at chapter 6 this morning, Paul, in the very beginning of the chapter, had spent some time going, hey, you want to know that I'm a minister of the Lord. I'm not going to send you letters of recommendation from people. He's already said in the beginning of the, this book, he said, look, you are my letter of recommendation. Look at your lives. They're different than they were before you heard the gospel and received Christ and decided to be a disciple of Jesus. But then he also says, I commend my ministry. I commend my very uh, character to you. Look at it. Examine it. And in uh, chapter 6, verse 3, he says, This was our aim to give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. He said, in all of the things that we've sought to do to serve the kingdom of God, we don't want to give any offense. Now, Paul, to many that did not believe, was probably very offensive because he was saying there's only one way to be saved, Jesus. That's offensive to the unbeliever. But to the person who believes in Christ, they're like, hey, amen. All the people said amen, you know. And I I even interjected while we were singing. I said, uh, all God's people said amen. Because you can go and preach the same message of salvation to a crowd that's mixed. And there's going to be people there that go, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not saying amen. I don't believe that. I believe that there's many roads that lead to heaven. But the reality is, is there's only one. But he says, as much as depends upon me, I give no offense in anything. I don't want this ministry to have any sort of blame that's undue, that brings shame to the Lord. 
But verse 4, he says, in all things we commend ourselves as ministers. And that word, you think of the word minister, it actually just means servants. He's not saying, hey, we're these high and mighty ministers. He's saying we're servants. As ministers of the Lord, we serve the king. And because of that, this is what we're doing. Ministers of God. And then he says this. We commend ourselves as ministers of God with these characteristics. He said, in much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings, by purity, excuse me, verse 5 and verse 4, he's saying all these things. You see all the negative things that have happened to him. And then when he goes to verse 6, he says, here's how we handled it. Here's the way that we endured under these circumstances. He says, by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, that word means patience, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love. Not just, hey, I love you, but sincere love, love that's without hypocrisy. By the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. So the way that they experienced those trials, they weren't, they, they weren't shielded from them by the Lord, but they had to live out their life, their ministry, while all that stuff was happening to them like it does to everyone else. We don't get to live out this life of faith in ideal conditions. When I used to study physics in college, they, they gave you these problems, but, and they were good problems. We get to learn how to do the math, but they didn't account for things like wind and friction and all of these things that actually happen in the real world. Paul was living out his faith in a real world with real problems, with real people, and it's messy. And what he's saying there is we handled these circumstances with the fruit of the Spirit as showing out in our character. The fruit of the Spirit Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 6 is love. That's the fruit. And what it tastes like, what it looks like is joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against these things, there is no law. This is righteous living, people. That's what he's saying. But here's the deal. Everyone goes through the circumstances Paul does. Everyone experiences pain and trial in this life. But the minister of God, when he goes through those things, will be proven by the way that he handles them. And let me tell you, when you experience trials, when you experience those circumstances and, and the stuff that Paul says, hey, these are the things that happened and they're not in you, don't think, hey, the Lord doesn't love me or, or I'm not a Christian. Think maybe I've got some room to grow. Paul's saying, look, We've lived among you, and these are the, this is the stuff that poured out of us while we were going through these circumstances. This is how we can commend ourselves to you and say, hey, we are ministers of the Lord because we reflect his character while the world is pressing in on us and, and trying to keep us from doing what we've been called to do. He says there, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. Paul says we don't fight battles of this world the way that the world does. We do it with the armor and with the offensive weapons that the Lord's given us. And he talks about those later in Ephesians. In chapter 5 or 6, he talks about putting on the armor of God. But what does he mean by the right hand and on the left? Well, if you think about a soldier in that day, if you've seen a picture of a knight even, you'd see them with a shield on the left, typically, unless it was one of those 
uh, other soldiers that can kind of sneak in and have a left-handed sword. Uh, th- there's stories about that in the book of Judges, but, but what he's saying is that we've got this defensive weapon, the shield, and it's talked about in uh, Ephesians, talked about as the shield of faith. We, we quench the fiery darts of the enemy. We shield ourselves. We are able to be defended. But then there's the, the battle that's done with the only offensive weapon that the Christian is given is the sword. But it's not a sword where we lob off people's ears like Peter did. It's a sword of the Spirit. It's the word of truth, which is able to be our offensive weapon so that we can go out and take ground. It's not about just hunkering down and, and never moving forward, but it's about hunkering down under the shield of faith, but moving forward in the Spirit, using the word of God as our only weapon that we can be offensive with. Now think about that. Jesus, when he was tempted in the wilderness, he experienced these trials, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, we'll talk about here in a minute. How did he defend himself? Well, he, he hunkered down under the, the shield of faith, but he also moved forward. He quoted the word of Scripture in order to fight the attacks of the enemy. He didn't just hunker down, but he also wielded the sword of the Spirit. He used the truth to set him free from anything he might be tempted to. And so Paul here is doing the same thing. He says the right hand and the left. He says, I'm doing battle. This life is a battle until we get to go home to the Lord. That's where we get to stop battling. But then in verse 8 through 10, he lists off basically opposing things. You'll see in everything he lists, there's a contrast. He starts off by saying, by honor and dishonor. Well, those are opposites, right? So this whole list is going to be a list of, of, of contrasting ideas. In, in other words, what he's saying is, while we experienced these trials, there were things that people were saying about us. There were things that the people around us, the enemies of the Lord were saying about us, the people that have come in and tried to draw the Corinthians away from, from following the teachings of Paul. They said, you know what, Paul, he's kind of dishonorable. They said uh, he, they had evil reports about him. They called him a deceiver, it says in verse 8. In verse 9, it says they, he's really unknown. Who's this guy? Why do you guys think that he's so great? Um, as dying, they said, you know, this guy, he's, he's weak. As sorrowful, verse 10. As poor, they called him poor and having nothing, according to these last two verses. But Paul says, even though they said these things about me, that's what they could see on the outside. Paul did look poor. I mean, the guy was in jail all the time. He was suffering. He was beaten by the leaders in just about every town he went. He was thrown in prison. So you could look at the outward this, using your, your visual eyesight, and you go, that guy's not got the, the, the favor of the Lord on his life. Why should we follow him? If anything, you become like who you follow. We don't want to go down that path. So we walk by faith, though, not by sight. So what, the, what Paul says is, even though they said this about me, here's what the Lord says about me. And so he gives the contrasting ideas. He says, as um, verse 8, it says there, by honor and dishonor. The Lord says, I'm honorable. They say, I'm dishonorable. They say, I'm of evil report, but God has a good report about me. They call me a deceiver, and yet I'm true. I'm sharing the truth. Verse 9, as unknown, and yet I'm well known amongst the Lord. As dying, and behold, I'm alive. Paul was stoned nearly to death in one of the towns he went to, and the Lord raised him up. Paul believed that. Look, I I was drug out of town. They thought I was dead, but God's kept me alive. There's a reason for that. 
And then he says there, as being chastened and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich. Paul looked like he was poor and yet because of the riches of God's grace, because of the message that he shared, he was, part, he was taking the riches that he had and he was giving them to those that he spoke to. He spoke words of edification and strengthening. He gave them the gospel that would free them from the guilt and the shame of their sin. He gave them riches that no one else could see. And the world looked at him as having nothing, and yet he possessed all things. He held on to the promises of God. Think about that. Struck down, yet not destroyed. There's a song that says that. I can't remember what scripture it's quoting, but he says, I'm blessed beyond the curse, for his promise will endure forever. And so Paul's holding on to those promises. You ever think that Paul looked at his own life and said, you know what, maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe I'm not got the favor of the Lord on me. Look at my life. I used to have everything. I was on the Sanhedrin council. People revered me. And now everywhere I go, people hate me. They try to stone me. They try to put me to death. God, where are you? And so don't you think that in many ways that would cause him to dig into the word and go, wait a minute, maybe something's not right. Maybe I am in sin and to examine his own heart and go, maybe things do need to change. And then he'd come out of it and go, you know what? No, this is what God gave me to do. And I'm going to keep going. And even though things don't look what other people think they should look like, I'm holding on to what God has called me to do because it gives me joy. It gives me peace. And so the presence of the Lord was made known to Paul. So Paul's basically, he's exposing his heart. He's saying, look, I'm not above. I've heard all the things you guys have said about me. And I'm fine with that because I'm going to continue to do what God's given me to do. I'm going to share the gospel. I'm going to encourage people to grow up and I'm going to lift them up and raise them into leadership. And and I'm going to pray that this church would continue to go, that God's word would go forth in this community. And as he did that, he says there in verse 11, he says to them, Oh, Corinthians, you ever look at people that you love that continue to slander you or say things about you or, or even say, I hate you? I mean, think about your own children. At some point or another, it seems like kids pick up this phrase and they look at you and they say, I hate you. And you just like, you have no idea how much I love you. Why would you say such harmful things? Oh, I look at Lucy sometimes. I go, oh, Lucy. If you only knew the amount of love that we have for you, (laughs) the fact that we still get up and take care of you when you say such things should show you how much we love you. That's what Paul's saying. These people had spoken unwell of him because of the report of people they didn't even know. People came along and and said, you think Paul's really an apostle? And and Paul's like, if you only knew the sleepless nights I've prayed for you, the, the amount of travel and weariness that I've had. While Paul was in the Corinthian place, He wasn't taking payment from them. He would not let them pay him. He said, I I would rather stay up all night and fix tents because I want you to hear the gospel. I want to give to you free of charge what I've been given free of charge. Now, there were other places where Paul took payment. He still had to have a livelihood. But Paul, he he told them, he said, Oh, Corinthians, I've spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. He says, be reconciled. We've got a rift between us. We need to work on this. We need to be open with one another. He says, you're not restricted by us. We've opened the door. Our arms are wide open. Think about the prodigal son. 
The prodigal son said, you know, I'd just rather be a slave in my dad's household. I'd eat better than I am right now. I'd be provided for. And, and meanwhile, the father's sitting there waiting for him to come back. The only thing that was hindering the prodigal son from being received into the father's house was his pride and unwillingness to repent and go back and say, hey, I jacked it up. I messed up. I, I failed. I, I took my inheritance and I wasted it. And so he's saying to them, Paul is, this, the heart of a, a, a father looking for his prodigal son, you're not restricted by us, Corinthians. You're restricted by your own affections. Now in return for the same, I speak as to my own children, you also be open to me. I'm open to you, you be open to me. Come back. We need to deal with this brokenness between us and our relationship. And so Paul's kind of pointed out an important truth here. The people, the Corinthians, had a hard heart towards Paul because they didn't like what he had to say. But it wasn't just because they didn't like Paul, they didn't like what Paul taught. Paul was teaching them they needed to come out and be separate from amongst those who were not believers. You see, the world has affections for things that are not of the Father. The world has affections, and those affections draw us away from our one true affection, the Lord Jesus Christ. Sin that is harbored in our lives causes us to wax cold. We always talked about it at the men's Bible study with the Cowboy Church. You know, it's like an ember being taken out of the fire and being placed about 10 feet away. After a little while, that ember cools. Well, in order to go and and live out and do things that are not of the Lord, we have to take ourselves out of the fire for a while, out of the presence of the Lord. And when we do that, our love for the Lord cools. And we kind of forget where we came from. And so Paul's telling them, look, um, your affections need to be stirred up for the body of Christ. Stirred up for Christ, but as they're stirred up for Christ, they'll be stirred up for the other believers in Christ, including Paul. He says, the reason your affection is not for me anymore is because you love the world too much. You love the world too much. So you say, well, what's the big deal if I love the world too much? What's the big deal if I love the world a little bit? You know, it's just a little bit here and a little bit there. What's the big deal? Well, in 1 John chapter 2, I'm going to turn there real quick. The Apostle John writes this. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. This is kind of hard stuff, but he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world, and the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of, the, of God abides forever. So there's this correlation between the love of the world and doing the will of God. Loving the world will cause you to do the will of God less. It'll take away your capacity to do God's will. It will take your affections away from pleasing the Father. It's like having a mistress. It's like adultery. If you have a mistress, if you have someone else that you love more than you love your wife, all of a sudden you don't like them as much anymore, right? It's a funny thing. You only have so much capacity to love. So what the Lord is saying is if your love for the Lord is kind of going down a little bit, perhaps it's because you love something else more. That's what an idol is. 
When you love something else more than you love the Lord, your affection for him will grow less. It's the same for the body of Christ. When you love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you love what he loves. You, you love his people. You, you can't stand to not know what's going on in their lives. You want to be a part of them. You want to be knit and joined together because that's what the Lord's will was. In John chapter 17, he prayed that. He said, my prayer, he, as he prayed to the Lord, to the Father, he said, is that the, the church and the Father would be one just as I and the Father are one. Unity, joined together. And so Paul's saying here, you don't love me and you don't want to receive my teaching because you, you feel like you're going to have to give up some of your affections. So he says, your love for the church needs to be stirred up. And in Colossians chapter 3, he said the very same thing. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. This is... Uh, Paul writing to this Colossian church, and he said there, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind, this is the, the center of our driving force, our mind, set your mind on things above and not on things of the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, he says, put to death your members which are on the earth. And then he lists some specific things that they had problems with. Their affections had been taken away. Put, away, put to death your members which are on the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness which is idolatry. These things are all signs that there's idolatry in the heart of the believer. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked. That's past tense. So in the, in the life of the believer, you should no longer be walking in these things. When you lived in them, he says, but now you yourselves are to put off these things, anger, Wrath, you know, we read the list before and we're like, well, I'm not doing that. But then he goes on, he says, put off these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and he is in all. So when Christ is in all of us, what comes out of us should be what would come out of Christ. He is our source. He says, therefore, as the elect, the chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on. He tells us what to put off. And then he tells us what to put on. And it is something we have to do intentionally. To put on Christ. To put on, he says, tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. Last week we talked about how Paul said we make it our aim to do something, right? This Christian walk is not something you just kind of happens. It's something we have to decide to do day in and day out. So he says put on tender mercies kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. 
If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Think about it. The Lord's Prayer, he says, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have debts against us. Forgive us our sins, another translation says, as we forgive those who sin against us. So Paul's saying, I'm forgiving you guys. We've been, Paul has just told us in the last chapter, in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, I'm going to go back to Corinthians, he's told us that we have been reconciled to God. The word reconciled, I didn't define it last week, it means to settle accounts. Our account has been settled. Our rift between God, our broken relationship between God has been settled. Now, in this case, between us and Christ, between you and Christ, between me and Christ, Christ didn't have any debts against me. There was no debt to settle. He was clean. He has never sinned, nor can he sin. But I had a major debt. I had a great bankruptcy. And so he has deposited, he, he withdrew my sinfulness. He put it on Christ, on the cross, it was crucified. And then in, in, in exchange for that, he deposited into our account his righteousness. Our account is full of God's righteousness. And so because of that, our relationship has been settled, that we have no debts. So the idea is, practically, you and I know that we still sin. We fall short of the glory of God. We have things that happen. We have things that we say. We have anger issues. We have uh, sin issues. We have bitterness. We have grumbling and complaining issues. And so the idea is to keep a short account, to daily reconcile that bank account, just like you would your checking account. Now, I know not all of you do that, but in this account, it's important that we do that. We need to make it our aim to keep a short account with the Lord. And as we reconcile with Him, then we can have a reconciled relationship with others. But if you don't walk in a reconciled relationship with the Lord, more than likely, you're not going to reconcile with others. If you recognize your forgiveness, you get up in the morning, you say, Lord, thank you for my salvation. Please cleanse me. Please change me. Lord, thank you for for forgiving my sin. Thank you for making our relationship right. And as you walk in the newness of that relationship, you get up and you live out your day starting first and foremost with humility going, hey, I've got nothing to brag about. My relationship with the Lord is all based on his forgiveness. So then when you go out and you go to work, you talk to your wife in the morning, your husband, your kids, and they do something against you, you'll be quick to forgive more than likely because you recognize how much you've been forgiven. So then Paul says, As a result of us being reconciled to God, we've been given a ministry of reconciliation. We are now ambassadors for Christ. He said that in chapter 5. So if that's the case, if Paul's an ambassador for Christ, and if these Corinthians are ambassadors for Christ, and they're ministers of reconciliation, taking broken relationships and, and healing them by the power of God, Paul's saying, why don't we reconcile ourselves? You know, oftentimes we look at other relationships and go, yeah, they need to be reconciled. And hey, we need to fix this brokenness. And yet in the meantime, Paul's saying, why don't we start in the house of the Lord? Why don't we reconcile here first and foremost? Why don't we deal with our brokenness? Why don't we bring out to the open the wounds that we've caused one another? Because the reality is, is in the body of Christ, sometimes wounds are more prevalent than we like to admit. And so Paul says, hey, let's deal with those wounds. Let's reconcile one another. And then as a result of that, he says, now that we've been reconciled, 
One of the ways that we can be reconciled is if we can, we can deal with these affections we placed in other places. Stir up our affections for one another. And then he says, now let's get rid of our affections for the world. You say, well, what's it matter if I love the world? I talked about that in 1 John. He said, do not love the world and the things in it. Because all the things that are in the world are not of the Father. They'll pass away. God's eternal. We'll be accountable. We'll be judged based on what we love. And so Paul says there, he says, Don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Why is he talking about the temple of God? Why is he talking about being yoked together? Well, do you not know that the things that you love, you yoke yourself together with them? The people that you take counsel from, you're yoking yourself together with them. So as God's people, we need to draw our wisdom. We need to be yoked with believers. Now, I get it. (laughs) We don't get that luxury all the time, right? We work in places. We go to places. We are related to people. We have to make decisions with people that don't know the Lord. So how do we reconcile those things? Well, as much as depends upon us, we need to make our decisions based on godly wisdom, not worldly wisdom. And as many times as we have the opportunity, we need to not be tying ourselves together with people that will affect our lives and cause us to go after the world. That goes in relationships. Think about marriage relationships. I know so many people that are believers that wanted to get married so bad that they married someone, kind of missionary dating, thinking, well, I'll change them. But the reality is, is that if you marry someone, you're basically telling them, I love you the way that you are. And if you don't love them the way that they are right now, warts and all, don't marry them. Christ wants us to be separate from the world. In the world, but apart from it at the same time. And the reality is, is that when he's talking about a yoke, he's not talking about the yoke you and I would see in our breakfast. He's talking about that yoke that links two animals together to plow a field. And it was, made, it was a, a yoke. It's interesting, Jesus had actually talked about being yoked. But it was made by a carpenter. It was wooden. It wasn't forged out of metal like new yokes would be. It was, for, it was made out of wood, and it would be basically formed and fashioned for the specific animal it was going to sit upon. You tie two animals together. Well, think about it. In uh, Deuteronomy chapter 22, it says, don't yoke an ox and a donkey together. Well, there's many practical reasons for this. If you've got two animals tied together that are different size, their legs are different lengths. They're going to go at different speeds without even trying. The, the, the rows that they plow are going to go in circles. They're going to have crop circles going on because it'd be like if you had a short leg and you started walking. You know, you're going to kind of take smaller steps on one side. But what's another reason? Well, that yoke, if it's on two different size animals, it's going to rub the other one raw. They're not going to be walking in unity like two oxen would be. So there's lots of practical reasons, but why in the world would he talk about that in the Old Testament unless there was a New Testament principle? Well, the New Testament principle is that he was talking about not putting two different animals together because spiritually we need to be equally yoked with the people around us that we do things with. And that's an okay thing. In marriage, it's one of the most important places to be equally yoked. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe that 
the, the husband should be a little bit further along spiritually, but it doesn't always work that way because the husband's supposed to lead the household. But in the same way, sometimes we need somebody, a wife that's more spiritual than us in certain areas. My wife teaches me to pray because that's where she goes first. I tend to trust in my own understanding, and she tends to pray more. And that rubs me wrong for the right reasons. But not to be unequally yoked with someone that won't pray at all and will draw you away from the Lord and your affections. Look at King Solomon. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. First and foremost, what in the world? Why? I can't even relate to that. I, that number is just gargantuan. But he wrote the Proverbs and came up with all kinds of wisdom because of his failures. But no doubt, to be married to, he was married to so many women that were not God's people. And because of that, he built high places. He built temples for idols. And he didn't just build them for them. He eventually, because he loved them, started going to those temples and worshiping. And he stopped worshiping the one true and living God. And so that one of the reasons we need to be equally yoked. So he talks about what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness. Well, nothing. Righteousness means you're following the law. Lawlessness means there is no law. It's chaos. What about uh, what communion has light with darkness? Well, there's nothing the same. The only thing that's, that's true about them is that they're exact opposites. Light and darkness never meet. Light casts out darkness. Um... And then he talks, so all of these are contrasting things. What accord has Christ with Baal? And that was a, a, a pagan god. Well, nothing. They, they're not in one accord. What part has a believer with an unbeliever? No, they have two different sources for why they do what they do. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? doesn't have any agreement. But why is he talking about the temple of God? Well, in the Old Testament, the temple was a place where God chose to dwell and to make himself known to his people. There was only one temple, and the people would go there at the feast times. They would make sacrifices. They would burn incense. They would be prayed for. They would pray for the nation. There were priests involved. That's where communion with God happened. That's the place, the physical location. So they would spend all their time cleaning that place and keeping it prepared as a place for worship. Well, we don't have a temple, so what, how do we apply this? Well, in the New Testament, what we're going to find out in this passage is that you and I, as believers, we are the temple of the living God. We are the place where God has chosen to make his presence known. He is in us. He works through us. But he's also the place where he makes himself known from. And so he rests upon us and he makes himself known in this place. So if you and I have idols in our hearts, we have affections for things that are not in one accord with God, they're unequally yoked for a believer, then what God is saying to us through this passage, what he's saying to the Corinthians through Paul is, clean out the temple. Get all the junk out of there. Take all the, the idols, take all the things that take all your time and your finances that are not of the Lord, and, and remove them. Because if they're stirring your affections for the world, and they're causing you, as 1 John chapter 2 says, not to be obedient to the Lord anymore. That's how you can know that it's an unhealthy love for the world. Now, you and I have to live in this world, right? So we can't practically make everything go away. 
There are going to be things around us day in and day out by our choosing and not. So what he's saying is all the things that are there by your choosing that stir your heart away from the Lord, get rid of them. Stop playing around with them. Get the junk. Clean out your closet. Because ultimately, in the long run, it's going to hinder you from following the Lord's calling in your life. Turn with me to the book of Acts in chapter 20. Paul wasn't teaching something that he wasn't living out. I like this about Paul. It's very open and honest. In Acts chapter 20, Paul told this to the elders there at Ephesus. Now, Ephesus and Corinth were places where there were tons of idols. And so Paul told them in uh, Ephesians, or excuse me, Acts chapter 20. Let me see where my reference is here. Acts chapter 20. Oh, there it is. Verse 22. He says this to the elders there. He says, See, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there. Paul was towards the end of his life. He was being taken to Jerusalem. He's not knowing what was going to happen to him there, but he knew he was supposed to go. But one thing he did know, according to verse 23, here's what the Holy Spirit testifies in every city that I go to, saying that chains and tribulations await me. (laughs) Can you imagine? Paul knows he's in the will of God, and yet he knows that chains and tribulations await him there. He says, but he knows that he was called to do this. So in verse 24, he says, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus. Paul's saying, I don't love the world. I don't have affections for even my own life. What is important to me is that I do the will of God, that I do everything he gives me to do. And as a result of that, notice what he says so that I may have joy and finish the race and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. Paul's driving force in his life is he knew that he was loved by the Lord. He said that in a previous chapter in this book. It's the love of Christ that compels me. He loved me. How can I not respond in obedience? And then he said, I don't love my life so much that it keeps me from doing what God gives me to do. Let me ask you, Do you love your life so much that it causes you to disobey the Lord? I see it all the time in my daughter. And when I see it in my daughter, I realize that she's doing what I do. When I ask her to do something, no matter how simple it is, if she's doing something that she loves more, that she's already invested in, her affections are there, she will not even look at me. She'll keep doing what she's doing. She hears me, by the way. Her ears work. Because when I start getting frustrated and I raise my voice, Daddy, that hurt. Well, it hurts because she doesn't like it because she wants to do what she wants to do. So if I say, Lucy, I need you to go and put your shoes on and she's playing with her puzzle, which I have no problem. It's not a bad thing, but it's a thing that causes her to disobey. Therefore, it's a bad thing, right? It's loving the world more than loving the affections of the Father. And so what Paul tells them is he says, if I will let go of those things, if I'll not love my life, or one translation actually says, I don't hold my life dear to me so that I may do what God's given me to do and finish the race. So I lost my place, but we're going to finish in Corinthians. There it is. He says, for you are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them, I will walk among them, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, 
come out from among them. O Corinthians, come out from among the people you've been saved from. This is a plea from a, a, a hurting father, someone who cares deeply about their spiritual health. He says, come out from among those who are ultimately affecting you and drawing you away from Christ. He says, be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you. You shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Verse 1 of chapter 7 says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. Let us cleanse ourselves. When you love the body of Christ more than the world, which is obeying the will of the Father, God will reveal himself to the world through the body of Christ. Does that make sense? When you love the body of Christ more than the world, God will reveal himself to the world through the body of Christ. Jesus loved the people he died for more than the world. Think about it. What does it matter if I love the world a little bit? Well, look at the life of Jesus. When he was in the temptation in the wilderness, right after being baptized, he was tempted by three things. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. And so when he was tempted, what did Satan say to him? Hey, why are you so hungry? Turn that rock into a piece of bread and eat it. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. Hey, Jesus, hey, why, why are you, I mean, why don't you just get up on top of the temple and jump off? Scripture says that God won't let your foot even dash against the stone. He'll send angels to catch you, and then everyone will believe in you. And what did Jesus say? He said, hey, I don't love power. He said, I'm not to tempt the Lord my God. That's what Scripture says. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Well, come up to this mountain with me. So he's up on the mountain. He's looking over all the kingdoms of the earth. And Satan looks at him and says, hey, you're going to be the king over this anyway. Why don't you skip the cross? And I'll just give you these kingdoms to be ruler over right now. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You know, he says, I will never worship you. Because that was the thing. If you worship me, I'll give you all these kingdoms. Well, if he loved the world, then he would have worshipped Satan to get the power over those kingdoms. But since he didn't, he was obedient. You and I, it's the same way. Jesus didn't love the world, and it meant salvation for us. If we don't love the world more than we love the Lord, it may mean salvation for somebody. Not because we died for their sins. We can't do that. But because we, instead of pointing them to what we love, which what we love, people will start to love, we'll point them to our hope that is not in this life, but it's Jesus. Does that make sense? People will love what you love, no matter what. I love my motorcycle and riding it, and my daughter loves to get on it, and she will love motorcycles one day. It'll catch. I love taking the boat out and going fishing. My daughter literally, while we were getting ready to take the boat out, she was so excited about a boat ride that she hugged the tongue of the trailer. She loves what I love. Lord, help me to love Jesus more than I love fishing and my motorcycle and anything else that would get in the way of pointing her to Jesus. People will love what you love just like my daughter loves what I love. May our affections be stirred up for Jesus and as a result for the body of Christ, for his kingdom, for his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray.